Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. a book called First Thousand Days. It might just be called Thousand Days. And it's about how important um, the first thousand days are between the, the, the conception of a human being, when a human being is conceived in, you know, in the womb of a woman, throughout that pregnancy, and then through the child's second birthday. And this was actually a conversation that was happening um, because of global numbers relating to uh, prenatal and then infant health, and particularly in relationship then to infant mortality. And it focuses on the health of mothers and their babies. And that first thousand days starts, you start that count um, when a woman becomes pregnant. Which leads me to uh, an article posted in the New York Times. And any time that there is something that's posted in, you know, a, a high-profile mainstream media outlet that gives us the opportunity to engage a secular culture, I mean, a a, a culture often hostile to um, to the Christian faith and the Christian worldview, when when an outlet like the New York Times publishes an article like this one entitled "Premature Births." drop off the map during pandemic. You want to say to yourself, um, okay, if we if we're going to talk about babies and we're going to talk about uh this is going to lead us to a conversation about viability, human viability and how that uh, uh is a moving target. Um but it also gives us the opportunity to talk about birth and babies and mothers and maternal health and prenatal care and on and on and on. So the uh, the article takes a very long time to get to uh, any sort of speculation about why premature births have dropped off so dramatically during the COVID pandemic. Um, but one uh, one possibility that's offered is um, women are actually resting; they're staying home, and therefore um, staying at home, they're actually getting more sleep. They are receiving more support during their pregnancies from their families. Uh, They may or may not be experiencing less stress, but they're certainly experiencing less stress from work. Women staying at home also uh, have been able to avoid infections that they might have been exposed to in the general population. Not just, uh, obviously, the coronavirus, but other things such as like the flu, which can raise the odds of premature birth. So I, I lift this up because it is an opportunity that, secular media is offering us. Um, So, uh, and here is the headline as it now appears at NewYorkTimes.com. During coronavirus lockdowns, some doctors wondered, where are the preemies? Hospitals in several counties saw dips in premature births, which could be a starting point for future research. And so, again, I just want to lift this up to you as an opportunity to talk about life 
It's an opportunity to talk about the value of life, the sanctity of life, uh, the precious nature of human life, the way God has uh, designed for it to happen. Um, And it's an opportunity to talk about moms as well, maternal health, prenatal health, and an opportunity to talk about the importance of those first thousand days. All right, next up, uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. I've also discovered you can find him at brettnixmd.com. We're going to talk about new clinical trial data in terms of COVID vaccines. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me again today, Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. And I have just discovered you can find Dr. Brett Nix online at brettnixmd.com. Brett, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How have you been? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm fantastic. That's, How about you? That's great. Ah, I can't complain. Things are, uh, things are busy, as always, in the emergency department because of uh, the, the current setting of things. But to be honest... Uh, when uh, I look at the perspective that I'm healthy and able to, able to provide care every day, that's a good place to be. Amen. My biggest dilemma um, today is that I have bushels of tomatoes that need to be picked and my family's out of town. So all of my, <laughs> all of my helping hands, particularly like, uh, anyway, so I'm, uh, that's what I will be doing this afternoon. I will be picking tomatoes, which seems like a good, uh, that's a good, good thing to be doing. Okay. You know, there's something um, to be said about being outside in uh, in the open air and uh, getting some UV protection. Talk about a perfect place for social distancing, right? Yeah, I have I have uh, I have acres and acres of social distancing today. I'll be perfectly <laughs> happy out there. <laughs> Me and the dogs and the cows and the chickens. Okay, um, Brett, let's talk about vaccines. Give us an update because this seems really positive. Yeah, I've, you know it's crazy if you think about it. Right now, there are 140 preclinical trial vaccines out there right now, 26 that are actually in the clinical trial stage. And two of the three that are sponsored by Operation Warp Speed from the U.S. are entering, uh, are about to enter into uh, from phase two into phase three trials. And what that means is they have identified that the first several rounds have identified safety, have identified some level of cellular immunity uh, being developed. And so now it's getting into a broader range of testing that allows further identification of safety, uh, as well as most importantly, what is the downstream effect from the vaccine? And uh, you may have heard on Monday, there was a lot of discussion around the one that is based out of Oxford uh, in the UK. And what they were saying is that, hey, we are seeing that uh, at uh, 28 days after the vaccination, they're seeing cellular immunity maintaining itself and continuing to build. And now it's not long enough yet for us to know how long will it last. And that's part of the process of, of establishing these. But the other good thing about it is that the vast majority of patients, if they have any side effects at all from it, are the typical things you expect from a vaccine, which are something as simple as a little bit of a fever and maybe some aches. When you think about, uh, I mean, one of the things that I have heard um, in relationship to like vaccines and things that we're learning are the ways in which it helps us. So uh, that's not a very well posed question. Tell me about T cells. I know nothing about T cells and I am hearing about them now. So there's so many different ways. I mean, our bodies are amazingly well created in the sense that we have a robust immune system. And so when we're exposed to something that our body doesn't doesn't recognize or is something that's foreign to our body, we develop 
response many people will hear about antibodies. And the T cells are kind of like the fighting cells, if you will, that can fight a virus as it comes in, like the coronavirus, let alone other things. And so many times people are looking at, you know, is there a cellular immunity that you think about with viruses? Is there a bacterial antibody? We think about antibodies that we, antibiotics that we take for uh, infections or whatnot. And so there's a very broad and robust comparison. And so sometimes we distill it down to something that's probably not uniformly uh, correct, but we talk about cellular immunity and we talk about T cells. And if you think about T cells, if you mount a response, those T cells are saying, hey, I recognize you and you are not part of me. And so therefore I'm going to eliminate you from uh, the body. And so that's the immunity that you want to, to, to establish. And so what the scientists are doing is they're taking this genetic uh, instruction from the coronavirus, many times from a certain protein, and they're calling it the spike protein, the unique thing that's from the beta coronavirus that we're looking at. And they have found many different ways to place this in, and this allows neutralizing antibodies to be able to disable our coronavirus when you have exposures. And so it's very exciting when you think about this, the T cell that can help coordinate the immune system and is able to spot when the body cells have become infected, and it can go after and destroy them. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Brett Nix with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Uh, you can find him at brettnixmd.com. Um, Brett, I definitely want to talk with you about the sort of the value proposition, the debate about reopening schools. Um, maybe we take a very brief break right now and we come back. Um, we, we pivot to that subject. That sounds great. We'll do that. All right. Fantastic. We'll be right back. There's Continuing my conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at cmda.org. If you are involved in any way, shape, or form with, uh, with health care, uh, we want to really encourage you to engage uh, at cmda.org. You're going to find um, all kinds of encouragement and fellowship and support and equipping um, and a national network of others like yourself. And so cmda.org, we want to encourage you to check that out. Um, Brett, let's talk about this debate about reopening schools. Very, very heated. Moms openly attacking one another on social media. Uh, divorced parents who have shared custody trying to take each other to court because one thinks their kids should go back to school and another doesn't. Um, doctors weighing in on all sides. It's coming down to the wire. Uh, schools where I live are scheduled to reopen um, the second week of August. So it's 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 entirely too late for us to be waiting where we live for the federal government to, I don't know, fund tents outside in 96 degree weather. I don't know. So talk with us. Talk with us about, um, you know, just the upside and the downside, the values proposition related to returning to school. I'll tell you what. Um, it is contentious. Suffice it to say, and you will see this in social media. You'll hear this every single day on the media, whether this be on radio, whether this be on television uh, or streaming live. The challenge that we face is the point of perspective, and I'm going to take a half step back and then we'll jump right back in. If you look at the literature that we know now that we did not know back in January, we have thousands and thousands of, of peer-reviewed articles published and many, many thousands more that are non-peer-reviewed. We still have so much we are learning, but we still have so much more to learn as it relates to the coronavirus and the approach. The one thing that we do know, and this is, a big, again, a contentious topic, is that the argument against masks has always been, well, the particle size for the coronavirus is so small that it is not mattering whether you wear a mask or not because it's so small it's going to permeate through the, the membrane. 
the data that we know to be true and the, the things that we thought were true that are that we have found not to be are simply this. If somebody wears a mask, if we all wear masks continuously, uh, as far as our exposures are concerned, outdoors and common places and things like that, uh, the models that are out there right now predict that within six to eight weeks, it would be gone. Can you imagine that? Whether wow. we believe the particle size issue or not, yes, we know that it's probably not as much of a fomite issue, meaning on the surface as we thought. Yes, it, it piggybacks with a lot of the, the respiratory components of things, much more so like certain viruses, much less like measles or chicken pox or anything like that. So it's not as contagious as those. But the data that's out there now says, hey, if we did this, we would likely be able to see it nearly gone in about eight weeks. Now, if we had stepped that back a few months and understood it then to the degree we do now, we'd be in a different situation. So now that gets us to schools. And what we find with schools holds true, which is simply this. Distancing makes a difference. When you look at the spacing models as it relates, we talk about physical distancing. You know, the term social distancing, I'm not sure really applies. I don't know how with my kids, the concept of putting them in a classroom with their friends and telling them to stay away from each other is incredibly difficult. Uh, let alone telling them, here's your mask, keep it on your face. But both of those two things are the things that will matter most uh, when it comes to exposures. The other challenge we have to consider is that when we look at the perfect models, we're talking about things like air exchange. Well, schools aren't designed for perfect air exchange and being able to pull out the air that's in that classroom on a, on a, in a cyclical pattern that you will find in hospitals and things like that to help minimize spread. And so you have to incorporate things where you have isolated classrooms, you have intentional breaks where they go outside to go ahead and allow not only the room to cycle out, but for them to go ahead and mitigate exposures. Um, and then you have to think about how do you navigate education? How do you navigate the challenges around classroom size? Uh, if you go to a public school like my children do, uh, their classrooms are burdened with, with kids far greater than the capacity of those rooms typically hold, and there's no way they can go back to school in that same capacity. There's so many different permutations as it relates to it. And so, you know, the bottom line is each school district has been trying to come up with what is the best contingency, and many of them have several tiers based on a community spread in that environment. The community spread should be the driver of decision-making as it relates, and then they have to go ahead and tier and say, we're going to have to do virtual because our community spread is too high and we need to wait to an extended duration of time. Or we go tier two, which is we're going to go ahead and have classroom sizes where the kids are in class you know, two days a week for this group and two days a week for the other group, and every uh, on these other days they're virtual. Uh, where they can minimize classroom sizing. But the most important thing is it's, it's the physical distance in that classroom that matters. Or it's, hey, we've completely knocked out our community spread. We have no active, we have no active cases in our area. We're going back to school as we, as we know it from the past. So every single um, conversation that I engage in on this topic ultimately has to do with who, in terms of adults, who is at home or who could be at home for all of the various and sundry scenarios of of how it might play out in a particular community. And so we're seeing, you know, for those who are able, we are seeing a real rise in uh, in a, it, jumping into homeschool, homeschool co-ops. Um, for those who are able and have private schools that are small and are going back, um, you know, they're now maxed out. Um, you know, if they're committed to small classroom size, uh, those classrooms are now maxed out because they're able to, you know, people want to go back to school. A lot of people want to go back to school. We're also seeing, I mean, just it, it's just been an interesting um, conversation, depending on where you live locally. It's a, it's a very local conversation, as you've pointed out. 
um, there's a real there seems to be a real fear among some adults um, related to going back to school. And in those conversations, seemingly very little uh, concern about what's happening in the homes of those kids. I mean, kids at home over the long period of time, we know they've been exposed to uh, neglect and abuse in ways that, uh, you know, and food insecurity in ways that don't happen when they are in the regular rhythm of school. And so I just think that the layers of conversation related to this are, are many. I think you're right. And it's so difficult. I mean, special considerations and accommodations have to account for you know, the diversity of the youth that are going, those that, the vulnerable populations that you mentioned. I mean, I know of talking with teachers, they say, I did not hear from several of my kids through the entire spring quarter uh, because when I reached out to them, they said, I have to take care of the younger kids in my family because my parents have to work, you know, to the points of food insecurity that you mentioned, those who, you know, may live in, in uh, that uh, live in poverty, that have medically fragile conditions or developmental challenges, special needs. Uh, for many of them to be able to come to school is, is a refuge. It, it is a safe uh, harbor for them uh, that really fosters their creativity, their growth, their development, and allows them to potentially be able to move out of the the situation that they're facing. And so, you know, it's so difficult for us when we look at the, as you stated, the many different layers uh, and, and permutations that are associated with it. And it's going to be really, when you look at it, it is a family to family decision about, can we make this work? What does this look like in the future? And if we have to stay virtual, are we going to have jobs? Are we going to be able to continue to work now that the economy has you know, turned itself back on from a working perspective? Or are we going to have to cycle back and find that because of this and additional exposures uh, that some families are going to say, hey, I can't any longer. We have to navigate this. Um, there's not an easy solution. There's a lot of possibilities. And I think what it comes down to is the ability for us to recognize that the value of academic instruction and the social and the emotional skills, the things that they learn uh, from a safety perspective, the reliable nutrition that you state for those that are uh, disenfranchised that may need the morning to morning breakfast and the lunch to ensure that they have the adequate nutri nutrients to be able to grow both physically and mentally well. Uh, these are all things that have to be considered. And it's a balancing act because you want to sh you may shift towards one perspective but at the same time, recognize that in doing so, we may be increasing the associated risks of perpetuating the ongoing coronavirus. And I'll tell you, the data out there, again, hints that if the schools are going to open, uh, physical distancing and wearing that mask not only decreases spread, but more importantly, it decreases the level of illness for those that have it. The amount of people that have, will have asymptomatic coronavirus is much, much, much higher. So really what you're saying is you're not, you're not spreading the asymptomatic coronavirus, but what you're doing is for any that were exposed, you're minimizing the likelihood that they're going to have severe symptoms. And so regardless of whether the school opens or not, when those doors open, the appropriate physical and social distancing, the mitigation plans, you know, how do you get to school in the absence of buses and all of those things have to be well thought out. But at the basis of it, it has to get into what are the things in addition to masks that we need to be doing. Let me encourage you, if you're listening right now and you have not done so already and you are able to do so, reach out to your local school. doesn't matter which level you reach out to. Reach out and just say, um, I'm available to do X, Y, Z. Tell me how I can help. Um, because they need pretty much anything you can offer. They need help um, getting ready or they need help, um, you know, it's, they're going to need help. And so if you're in a position to do that and you are not afraid um, we really want to encourage you to assist in your in the most local of ways with your local school 
um, to get them ready to uh, to welcome students back in whatever way, shape, and form your local community is able to do that. Brett, I can't wait to talk with you next time about um, what's happening in the ER, um, but we've run out of time today. So uh, next time, let's uh, let's definitely talk about what you're seeing in the ER that maybe is different than what you saw pre-COVID. Um, and then, you know, let's just always be mindful to be praying for you and others who are on the front lines out there uh, in terms of health care. Dr. Brett Nix, thank you so much. I want to encourage people to visit Christian Medical Dental Association online at cmda.org. We'll be right back. Steve Arterburn is the founder and chairman of New Life Ministries. He's the host of the number one nationally syndicated Christian counseling talk show. It's called New New Life Live. He's also a best-selling author. You probably know Every Man's Battle. Um, you may also know Healing is a Choice. We are going to talk with Steve today about um, one of the books in a series that he's written. This one is Seven Ways to Choose Healing. I think the question I would pose is, are you suffering? And then the second question would be, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Because if we don't answer the question about whether or not we want to be healed, we're not going to make the choice necessary or the choices necessary to actually experience God's healing. So seven ways to choose healing up next with Steve Arterburn right here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, have you filled out the listener survey? If you're listening and you haven't filled out the survey, then please do. It's just that simple. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Your input really does matter to us here at Mornings with Carmen and the Faith Radio Network. We would love to have your input. Love to uh, know your perspective uh, on what we're doing, what we might do better, what you think we do well. Um, Love to hear about all of that. There is a listener survey. It is only going to be posted for a few more days at MyFaithRadio.com backslash survey. So go ahead and text the word survey to 877-933-2484 or visit MyFaithRadio.com backslash survey. What does the survey say? Survey says we'd love to hear from you. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. I spent too much of a high school summer working in the oil field. We donned gas masks, waded into ankle-deep, contaminated mire. My mom burned my work clothes. The stink stunk. Yours can do the same. Linger too long in the stench of your hurt, and you'll smell like the toxin you despise. The better option? Join with David as he announces, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. It is God who avenges me. He delivers me from my enemies. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O God. Wander through the gallery of God's goodness. Catalog his kindnesses. Look at what you have. Let Jesus be the friend you need. Talk to him. Spare no details. Disclose your fear. Describe your dread. You just found a friend for life in Jesus Christ. What could be better than that? This is Max Lucado. Stephen Arterburn is the founder and chairman of New Life Ministries, host of nationally syndicated Christian counseling talk show, New Life Live, also, also prolific author and delightful conversation partner. Steve Arterburn, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. I was just trying to fill out my survey, and 
It's just taking some time here. Good to be with you this morning. It's great to have you. You could um, you could comment that you'd like to be a regular guest, and then we would make that happen. Okay. <laughs> it is All early, right. even though I'm I'm an hour ahead of you. It's yeah. Well, early. thank you, thank you. Um, so we appreciate your your being with us this morning. I think I want to start the conversation about uh, the book is Seven Ways to Choose Healing. Let's start the conversation here. Jesus asks um, a person who is clearly suffering and has been suffering for a long time. Um, Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? It feels to me as if that is the question we have to answer before we get to a conversation about ways to choose healing. Yeah, because we get used to not being healed. Uh, For instance, uh, I can be bitter and somebody can be on a radio show saying, you know, if you would forgive the person that you're bitter toward, your probably your physical health is going to improve. Your outlook on life is going to improve. I mean, everything's going to be better, but you have to be willing to do that. You get so used to having the bitterness and you're, you feel so justified in having it that you keep it rather than walk out and be Free. So when Jesus asked this guy, do you want to be healed? He might be asking him, have you so found yourself in this learned helpless place that you really don't want to get out of it? And there are a lot of people that have a lot of problems. And, and no matter what choice they make, they're still going to have that problem. Because, you know, if they if they can't walk or something like that, if they've uh, been hurt like Johnny Erickson Tata. You can't just, you know, choose to heal that physically. But there are a lot of people that are just as debilitated, and you could walk in freedom, but you choose not to. And so this book is about making the choice to work with God to get better. Oh, Steve, um, I want to have this conversation about seven ways to choose healing. And then uh, it occurs to me that every single one of us knows someone else who we deeply love who chooses not to be healed. And yep. and then we have to we have to have a conversation about how do I still live in relationship with that person who chooses to stay where they are in that learned helpless place? Well, you know, the main thing is that you don't want to be uh, one of the folks that enable it or actually promote the learned helpless state. I just got a five-page email from a lady, and she loves her sister who's stolen money from people she's taken care of, is two years in prison, and she still wants to help her. But there's nothing in her sister's life that says her sister wants to be helped. So she's complicit in this horrible situation because she's bailing her out. She's taking care of the pets and all this stuff. A person needs to be allowed to come to the end of themselves so that they choose a different way with with the Lord. And people say, oh, I don't want to hurt this person. But not all hurt is harmful. And if we prevent somebody from hurting, we may be preventing them from being in enough pain to finally decide, I want to get better. Talking with Dr. Steve Arterburn, and we're going to talk about now seven ways to choose healing. 
Um, you can find it. Um, well, it's easy. It's easy to find. Uh, let me just in, let you encourage you to go to the New Life Ministries website. Um, that's probably the easiest place to track it down. Um, Steve, what are the seven ways to choose healing? And then we'll we'll unpack one of them. Well, I just in, I have got seven things like being connected and in relationship, healthy, redemptive relationship, or um, having feelings. You have feelings, so rather than run from them, try to numb them. Let's feel. Uh, rather than um, go through life without any insight, let's investigate your life. Let's let's become reflective. And you know, maybe we need to get some help and um, and embrace what you have, you know, embrace it rather than deny that you have this problem. And then uh, risk. A lot of people think once they've been hurt, that their job is to prevent themselves from ever being hurt again. But that really isn't true. You can become addicted to predictability and sameness. And then, you know, I mentioned this earlier, just the choice to forgive is a very powerful choice to heal your life. I'm talking with Dr. Steve Arterburn. We are talking about seven ways to choose healing. Uh, when we come back, we're going to we're going to unpack um we're going to pick one and we're going to unpack it. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Stephen Arterburn. You can find him at newlife.com. That's a great sort of one-stop shopping for all things Steve Arterburn. Um, Steve, let's talk about uh, one, uh, specifically one of these seven ways to choose healing. The book is Seven Ways to Choose Healing. There's a, there's a whole uh, list. Let's talk about one of them. Let's talk about embracing your life. Yeah, well, you know, there are two really great examples um, that are in ministry today. One is uh, Johnny Erickson, and mm-hmm. the other the um, Chuck Colson, who's passed away, but his ministry is so strong. You know, Ch- Chuck Colson went to prison because he committed this crime uh, during the Watergate situation years ago, and he could have gone to prison— and said, okay, I got that behind me. Now I'm going to rehabilitate my uh, image and all this kind of stuff. But what he did was he he embraced the fact that he had been in prison. He saw the needs of the prisoners. And so he comes out and he establishes this ministry called Prison Fellowship. And because he did this, because he embraced the reality that he had been a prisoner, he embraced it. He didn't try to hide it, cover up, move beyond it. You know, if you look at his life and you look at millions of people uh, have come to Christ in prison because of Chuck Colson, if you look at it, it's almost like it was meant to be. It was, you know, here's this horrible thing that happened. And when you look at the result, it's like it was meant to be. Johnny Erickson, you know, she wanted to commit suicide after she dove into shallow water and as a quadriplegic. She didn't do that. And as a result, she embraced this thing. And now people who are told by some horrible faith healer that you could be healed if you just had enough faith. 
but they can look to her and see that God doesn't choose every person to be physically healed on earth, no matter how strong your faith. And it'd be hard for somebody to have a stronger faith than Johnny Erickson or be a better servant than her. But God chose not to heal her physically. And when you look at all the people that she has impacted and helped, it's like it was almost meant to be. In fact, I asked Chuck Colson, do you think it was meant to be? And he said, you know, I just really have to wonder if it was. So when you embrace something, you transform the worst thing in your life to maybe the most powerful thing that you could possibly do. But what we want to do is hide in shame or deny, minimize, move on. And I'm saying, hey, let's embrace the reality of our lives. You know, if you grieve what you've lost, you are more able to embrace what you have. We have to let go of what was and what might have been so we can embrace what is and what is to be. All right, I'm writing that down. We have to grieve what we've lost. We have to let go. Um, of what might have been in order to embrace what might be. I think that, um, Steve, when we talk about the realities of life, right? I mean, there are many realities of life that are very, very difficult. And sometimes we're talking about uh, physical injuries or wounds or shattered dreams or lost hopes. Sometimes we're talking about ways in which we have sinned we have sinned. And, and other times we're talking about ways in which we have been sinned against. Forgiveness yeah. is important um, as a part of embracing life, um, because sometimes I have to not only receive the forgiveness of God, but figure out how in, in that process I'm going to forgive myself. But there's also this forgiveness component that I see frequently where people harbor, they harbor this not just resentment toward others, um, but they harbor this sense that because a particular justice has not been righted in this life, they um, are going to live in sort of righteous indignation toward everyone in the world um, because of a failure, you know, f uh, for them to have received what they view as uh, as justly theirs. This yeah. um, this this conversation, uh, you know, when it happens in families is one thing. When it happens in the culture writ large you know, sort of becomes a, a conversation for all of us. Talk about the relationship between forgiveness and embracing my life. Well, you know, if I, well, first of all, there are two things you don't want to carry around. Plutonium would, would be a not, <laughs> not a good thing. And the other is a justifiable resentment. There are people that have been so hurt and wounded, any kind of anger and bitterness, they would be justified. And that's, that's why it's so dangerous, because you tell somebody, I, I can't stand this person, or I hate this person, I'm still angry. They go, oh, well, after what they've done for you, you're so justified in feeling that way. But God says to get rid of all bitterness and resentment, no exception. And it just eats you alive when you don't do that. So to embrace my life, I have to forgive the people that have hurt me. And the degree that I value the forgiveness God has given me, that is the degree of which I'm willing to forgive other people. If I see myself as a sinner 
who is forgiven by the merciful God of the universe. And I am grateful for this because I see my sinful state. I am much more likely to let somebody else uh, get out of my head and move and get out of my soul because I forgive them. Because when you forgive, you are letting it go and you're letting God be the person that brings justice. You know, fair is where pigs win ribbons. It's not fair in this life. It is not a place where every justice is done. So um, we need to embrace and forgive. And when you forgive, you are being free. In fact, I do a whole workshop. We're doing one uh, in a couple of weeks called Finding Freedom. And a big part of that freedom is forgiveness. And if you don't have it, you're not truly valuing the forgiveness God has given you. That's where you need to start. All right. If I go to newlife.com, can I get the information about the Finding Freedom Workshop? You sure can. You just okay. right, click on it. And uh, I hope people will listen to the program, too, if they're not. Yeah. So go to um, newlife.com. All kinds of resources available um, from Steve Arterburn all kinds of online workshops. Oh, gosh, there's one on intimacy and marriage. There's one on lose it for life, finding freedom, every man's battle. Lots of upcoming uh, opportunities here for online workshops with Steve Arterburn. Obviously, we want to encourage you to check out um, his his radio counseling program as well. And the book we're discussing today, Seven Ways to Choose Healing. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Anytime, Carmen. You do a great job. I love being with you. Well, thank you. All right, you guys can go and fill out the survey. That's what Steve's doing right now. Text the word survey to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Seems good here at the close of the program to quote the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Christians at Philippi. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So as we seek to cultivate the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, let us set our minds on things above, even as we tend to the things of this world. Indeed, let us set our minds and our hearts on Christ. And let us be thinking about that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Because the things that we think about, the things that we dwell on, ultimately then produce not only our thoughts but our words and from them our deeds. Let's go out there and be a living demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, extending the gospel always and in all ways as ambassadors of the king and the kingdom, seeking to live out the kingdom principles in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.